Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. Back again. Back again. So what are we talking about today? What are we looking at? Uh, well, we said we'll do nature versus nurture as is one of those mm. things that people love to talk about. Um but when we'll, we'll do it here as well. Yeah, uh, it, absolutely. Um, it's something that um, one of our patrons, uh, Marianne, um, sort of talked about and asked about. So it seems like a really good question to talk about. And obviously in relation to the effect of growing up in a high control group or a cult or a religion or anything really, it's all it's all relevant. Um so yeah, what what effect does individual differences? How much does our personality, the way we were born versus the way we were raised, how much does that have impact upon the way we respond to being raised in that religious group or in that cult? Mm -hmm. It's a really, I think it's a really important question. Um, uh, not least because, as I've mentioned before, one of the areas of attack if you like for uh, apologists of cults and high control groups or new religious movements as they tend to be called when when uh, some sociologists are telling us there's nothing wrong there mm. is that um, the fact that some people don't have the same sorts of responses you know mm -hmm. that the fact that many people leave for instance suggests mm -hmm. that brainwashing can't be real because if brainwashing was real then people wouldn't leave mm -hmm. um, and they might quote quite high numbers of leavers um, as evidence that actually nothing's happening here mm -hmm. that we should worry about so I think that the thing that they're missing there is is the the individual differences and the way that different people will respond to the same input mm -hmm. so i think it's good to talk about that it's important to have that as a factor uh, when we're thinking about these sorts of groups mm. in a pop culture reference way of understanding it the way i sort of think about it is that like when we watched uh darren brown the push he purposely picks people that will be more like mm. susceptible to his uh particular um should we call it experiment <laughs> games mm, yeah. <laughs> um you know he put so there's some people that yeah will be more mm. um susceptible to being pushed and coerced than other people yeah. absolutely yeah mm -hmm. and understanding some of that is 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 interesting um just on its own merit um and yeah i think it is it's kind of important if we're trying mm -hmm. to understand what are the dynamics within these sorts of groups mm -hmm. um yeah so um that's that's kind of the the background of it as always, I feel like we have a format now. Um, we start with explaining what we mean. So yeah. I think if we do that again, <laughs> um, that would be good. So, I mean, what do you mean as as the resident psychologist? So uh, nature versus nurture is just, it's that, it's that phrase that trips off the tongue, isn't it? That's what people always talk. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is nature mm. versus nurture? How much is down to um, the way we were born? What have we inherited versus what? Is it about our environment that, that makes us do the things we do, if you like? And um, it, it's an age-old question, and it's sort of debated constantly. Yeah. So that's that's really what we're what we're thinking about. Um, and I suppose again, it, it, it because it's quite a, f a fuzzy concept. I mean, firstly, what do we mean by nature? Um, are we talking genetics? Or are we talking the natural world? I think I think most people, when we say nature in nature versus nurture, 
I think most people are thinking about genetics. I think so, um, yeah. Yeah. And and so if you're talking about genetics versus nurture, then basically what you're talking about is literally just the uh the way that the genes are distributed um between the father and the mother um and put together if you like in this new being that is you or me that's it and that's the end of it that's that's the nature of it the things i guess i I, yeah i'd word it like what you inherit because genetics and what you inherit because of being around your parents so that's not so that those two are different things entirely yeah that's what i mean yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. those are the two ways because like Mm. do i do things um that people go that's like what your mum does because i inherited it genetically or because i'm just used to my mum doing it and i've that's right copied her but not even not only your mum though so um nurture includes yes your parents but Mm -hmm. your school days um in fact anybody that came into contact with you even the um the 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 side of the house your cot was in um Mm -hmm. whether you were warm as a baby whether you were cold as a baby whether you even even at the point of you know when you were gestating even as a as a an embryo and a fetus the environmental conditions there what your mother ate what she drank um the the noise levels in the house um all of that is nature so by the time you pop out of your mum mm-hmm. um that's the, the whole nature bit has gone nine months ago because that's that's all it is so it's important to remember when we're talking about nature versus nurture we're talking about for, for nature it's the genetics and then for nurture it is quite literally everything else hmm. is that what the scientists say yes it is <laughs> there we go <laughs> that's what the scientists say so yeah it's, it's important to understand that um otherwise we can get into you know other things that might be natural he said in inverted comma commas like you know the 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 part of the world that you were raised was it warm or was it cold or these things are bound to affect your personality in some some way and they are natural in that the weather is natural the climate is natural but that wouldn't be counted as nature if we're talking about this question nature versus nurture we're talking about genetics and then everything else okay so um we want to talk about like personality traits and things like that so i think um It'd be good to talk about how that relates to nature and nurture. Yeah, in order to um, understand what bit of our personality is nature and what bit of our personality is nurture, in a way we need to identify some bits of personality that we can say, well, you know, how much of this is this and how much of this is that mm. and find out then how we do we go about finding that out. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to refer to the same model that I've talked about before, which tends to get the acronym OCEAN. Um, it's known basically as the Big Five, although we can't even agree on that, you know. So this is mm. based on Costa and McRae's, um five uh, personality you think traits. It's fairly accurate. Um, well, it's not me. It's um, the the uh, the evidence is that it's it's yeah. It's mm-hmm. a it's a pretty accurate way of describing personality, mm-hmm. um, much better than the um, the non scientific Myers Briggs, which I have a rant about in a previous episode. So I won't have mm-hmm. that rant again. But this is actually based upon research and lots and lots and lots of factor analysis of people's responses to questionnaires. So it is actually based on something scientific as opposed to Myers Briggs, which isn't mm. um so uh the the big five tends to be called is often remembered by its acronym which is ocean so if you remember ocean that helps you remember the the, the five categories if you like or five personality traits and they are openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism um so those are the those are what we consider to be the fewest 
ways of describing different personality traits um, that are actually meaningful if that makes sense mm. do you want do, do you think it's beneficial to talk about them as individual bits or should we talk about each one in relation to nature and nurture or what should we do here yeah that's a good question i think um i, I don't maybe we can come back to to that when we think about um how they might relate to high control groups i think that might be really quite interesting i think perhaps what might be useful to help us understand what we're talking about is to think about how we've arrived at those those different uh traits if you like Mm -hmm. so if you can imagine um thousands of questionnaires or thousands of people filling out questionnaires um all answering questions about their personality traits for instance if you filled this out during the creation of this model you might be asked things like you know um, which of these statements best fits you you know i um i never miss a train sometimes i miss trains and appointments um i don't care if i miss trains and appointments and so on and you would mark yourself on these various different um items and if you think about this being done thousands of times, what you can start to do by using computers, I mean, nobody would do this manually these days, but by using computers, you can start to see how one set of answers seems to correspond to the same responses where other people who've got this one also say this as well on this question. And so you start to build up some correlations, some relationships people who say this normally say this and this is how we kind of work out which personality traits or behaviors cluster together to create traits so i'll I'll just clarify for the sake of the listeners about something quickly so um when you say this and this because obviously you're doing two different hand gestures um you mean um this is in when they yeah when this and that so answering one question one way means um there's a correlation between answering another question yeah another way in it and having a link yeah that's right thanks for that yeah so um i'm gonna take quite a lot of my research from um, or a lot of the research I've done is is from my um, university course so it's, it's a lot of the stuff is taken from um, a book called Mapping Psychology it's from an open university uh, course DSE 212 so if you are a previous open university student you might recognize that um, but this is quite an interesting uh, way of thinking about it so we've got this remember i said one of the questions you might be asked is um, about how often you miss trains so you might make a statement like i never miss a train mm. or i never miss a- appointments so that might be one thing that's that's you've said you've answered on your questionnaire another question that you've answered is um i believe people should always be on time for work another statement you end up making on this questionnaire is i prefer to be early for appointments mm-hmm. so these would be scattered around so they're not you're not going to answer them all in one go they'll be scattered around in your questionnaire if you answer all three of those in that way then this will tell you something about this higher level quality that we might describe as punctuality mm-hmm. so we're saying that these three answers are correlated with the higher level concept of punctuality so we'll call that punctuality mm-hmm. so then in another part you might be answering questions like it's important to do what you say you'll do um, i never miss work deadlines my friends can always count on me so th- again these would be questions that would be scattered around so you wouldn't answer them all at the same time but you'd end up having these answers. And that those three, if you get those three together, you could say that that signifies fairly high levels of reliability. Mm. And then what you do is look at the next level and you say, right, how many of these punctuality, high punctuality scores are correlated with high reliability scores? Mm. Well, actually, there's a lot. They're very highly correlated. In other words, you tend to find people who are very punctual are also 
very reliable. So you start to say, well, actually, we're actually looking at something that we could say is pretty much the same thing. And you might then call that conscientiousness. Mm. And that's then the highest level that you can reasonably go to to say, well, there's nothing really else that's separate. There's nothing else that we can say um, to break that down further, if that makes sense. So we, we're saying conscious, conscientiousness is the highest level quality or behavior or trait that we can cluster these types together, like punctuality, reliability, and so on and so on. So there'll be, there'll be a lot of those. So what it is, it's a, it's a mathematical process that is done by computers to identify which qualities sit with each other and how many of these you can kind of reduce it down to. And so ultimately, all these different qualities, all these different tendencies, all these different traits, we're trying to reduce them down to as few as possible um, that actually make sense. And so that's how we end up with five. And conscientiousness is one of them. And that exercise will have been done for each of these uh, five different types. We won't have decided there will be five to start with. You know, the factors will come out in the data, but that's what we end up with. We end up with these five. Um, and that's that's how it's done. Um, so that's that's the quite rigorous way that these profiles are created. And then what happens is now you've got that, you can then create questionnaires that are based around that and people fill them in and you get a result at the end saying you're high in openness, you're low in conscientiousness, you're high in extroversion, you're high in agreeableness and so on. And that's that's how it works. So we've got a decent way of talking about these different personality traits. I mean, there's still arguments about, you know, how how accurate they are and how valuable they are and where they might be, you know, culturally situated and lots and lots and lots of questions around that. But um, they're pretty robust. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how we define people's personality. So, I mean, straight away, we could think about how that might relate to how we might respond to growing up in a cult, I mm. guess. Mm. Um, so we could we could play with it. I have to say that as far as I understand it, um, there hasn't been any good research done about this. Now, if I'm wrong about that and somebody knows of some, please let me know because I would love to read a paper about that that actually looks at the impact of um, personality types or traits, I should say, on the effect of growing up in a cult. I think there has been some work done a little bit, although not much, on tendency to get into cults. So there has been questions about, you know, are there certain personality profiles that tend to make people more likely to join a cult? Mm -hmm. Um I don't know the results of that. From what I seem to remember, there's not very good evidence for it, but there might there might be some. So again, I'd be interested in that. Mm. But as you know, I'm more interested in what it's like growing up in these groups. Yeah. Kind of, anyway, it kind of goes against what we were saying, that anybody can end up in a cult and that it's not um, to blame yourself, I suppose, because it can easily be mm. like a, oh, it's because it's because of me um sort of thing um but also yeah the, again an area where born in talk needs to happen i think so yeah so we're not thinking here about you know how how is it that um that certain people go into them what we're more interested in certainly in our discussion here today is what is it like what is the impact upon people with these different personality traits i mean there's a whole lot of questions you could ask like you know if you're born in and bred in a high control group um is there a higher frequency of certain personality traits than in the general population mm. that would be another really interesting question again i don't think there's any research on that if there is please tell me because i'd be interested in reading it mm. okay so um if we were thinking about what it's like to grow up in a a cult or a high control group let's say you have high levels of conscientiousness i'd presume so probably high levels of neuroticism 
Well, so you, you, by the answer that you're giving there is you, you're thinking about it a slightly different way to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that the cult is creating this personality trait in you, although that could be true. Mm. But the way Put I'm thinking, new personality. <laughs> yeah, but the way I'm thinking about it is, what effect does that have on you? So if okay. you're highly conscientious, yeah. okay. what effect is that going to have on? you and the experience of being in that group Mm. Um, so if you are not very conscientious and you get lots of information from the platform or in the group or whatever about making sure that you you know pray three times a day and you do this work and you have to make sure that this is right and that's right and you shouldn't think any bad thoughts and so on and so on then for a child that is high on conscientiousness, mm. that's going to hit them much harder, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because they, well, tendency to worry, I imagine, is higher in the high levels of conscientiousness. Especially when coupled with high levels of neuroticism. So yeah. if you're a worrier and you think, oh, maybe I, you know, and I think this is me, to be honest, you know, I've talked about this before probably you as well unfortunately I think you might have inherited this from mm-hmm. me but feeling you know I really want to do the right thing I really want to get it right and oh what if I didn't do it right what if I didn't mm. think the right thing or say the right thing or mm-hmm. um and this so the like the concept of blood guilt let's say there's another one imagine high levels of conscientiousness high levels of neuroticism um that's going to be a much more painful experience to you than if you have low levels of conscientiousness. Ah, I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't bother yeah. me. You know. Just a quick caveat as well. Do you want to just explain um, what's meant by neuroticism? Because I think it is a bit of like a, could be a word that makes people be like, oh, you know, um, but it's yeah. not necessarily what it pop culturally means, right? To be neurotic sounds very like, oh, sounds like 50s housewife language, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so um, so going by the uh, the book again. So this is uh, in the chapter personality, individual differences approach. Um, it uh, it talks about uh, neuroticism. It's sort of linked to well, the the opposite of neuroticism is emotional stability. Right. So if you think about it as n- emotional stability, that's probably um, you know a slightly friendlier way of thinking about it. So. Um, emotional stability, neuroticism is the amount of security or insecurity you might feel, how emotional, irritable, um, amount of feeling uh, excitable, emotional or in- unemotional. So it's, it's all those kind of feeling type things. It's, it's, you know, feelings of fear and insecurity and, and then perhaps responding to that by getting irritated or angry or and that sort of thing. So these are generally neuroticism isn't generally considered to be a particularly healthy um, personality trait. Um, so you're right in that it's not quite the same thing as what we might being just sort of unhinged. Th- <laughs> it's not unhinged, absolutely, but mm-hmm. it's still. I think high levels of neuroticism tend to be correlated with, you know, very common. It's a, it's a very common thing. So I don't feel, you know, bad mm-hmm. if you have it. It's just one of those things. But it does mean that you are more open to worrying, anxiety, ruminating, mm-hmm. those sorts of those sorts of behaviours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So 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 those are the those are the big five, and I'll I'll refer back to them a bit as we go. If you want to know more about that, there's a few places to go. Um, well in fact there's loads of places to go you'll find no shortage of stuff around um, Costa and McRae's Big Five again in my books Costa and McRae is actually not called the Big Five it's called the Neo Pie and the Big Five is um, a different one but they're so similar I think everybody basically calls them the Big Five now so look for that and you'll find lots of work on that We've talked about it in the past on some previous episodes. And also, <laughs> shall I get a plug in here? Uh, one of the things that, that we did going back 
couple of years is I used to do this thing called bike and psych where I'd go on my ah. bike and I'd uh, have my camera on my GoPro and uh, you'd get to see the scenery around Peterborough, um, which is actually nicer than you might think. And um, and I'd talk about a psychology subjects and so i have was doing to make himself accountable so he had to go on his bike you see it's the only way he can't just get him he can't just go of his own volition he has to have a job to do oh yeah i had to be like i was the other day i was like do you want to go walk the dog no i've got work to do i was like it will be half an hour (laughs) there's so so many hours in this day but yeah 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 that's because i'm high in conscientiousness Mm. yeah anyway there's a bike and psych about it so i'll put a link on there you can have a look on YouTube. You can look at the lovely scenery and um, listen to me slightly out of breath as I cycle around Peterborough talking about the big five. Um, so if you're interested in that, then check that out. Right. Okay. So I suppose um, the next the next thing perhaps would be useful is to try and work out how we can study how much of these things like openness, conscientiousness, and so on. I have a thought, though, the thing that we nearly did, when I said about um, what what I said that was about, like, uh, the cult ad- sort of changing your personality. So that was, like, more the nature side that you just said. It's like your, your personality and what it's like if you naturally have that personality mm. in a cult. But what if the cult is nurturing you into having a particular personality? That is so interesting, isn't it? My goodness, that is so interesting. How do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's let's. Um, oh, that's such a great question, and let's think about that as we go. Mm-hmm. Talk now about how we go about studying this stuff, because then mm-hmm. that is absolutely the question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. How much of our personality is down to the way we're brought up, and how much is down to just what we inherited from our parents, and that absolutely relates to the cult, doesn't it? because mm-hmm. the cult is your main like you know in the way that um i think donna on her interview said to us she was raised by the watchtower not her parents because when she would ask yeah. a question they would put mm. the book on the right page like on her bed or whatever or like just you know leave the book for her and she you know so like all the answers were there so um even in the way that your parents normally nurture you they are doing that but via um a particular mm. pathway you know Absolutely. And that, that in itself will have some really probably quite profound uh, influences on, on the way that you think and what you do. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a, in a little bit, because there's a really interesting little study around that, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, not not relating to cults, but around the way that a mother um, interacted with her baby and how that just very small interactions will tend to have an impact upon the baby's personality. Um, I think we, what I'd like to do, if I can, is is to understand how we go about trying to separate these two. Mm. Uh, so we tend, to, we tend to really focus on the nature bit. If you can work out how much is nature, in other words, how much is genetic, then the rest is everything else. Um, so... Ultimately, what we're going to try and get to is a a statement about, you know, how much percentage of our personality is down to our genes and how much of our personality is down to our upbringing. And Um, something that I think we've got to finish on is um, how much is in your control, because I think this conversation could easily sound like you're not in control of anything. Half of it's controlled by how you were born and you're always going to be in half of it. So not half, but you know what I mean? Mm. And the other bit is controlled by um, the way you were, yeah, nurtured and developed by the outside world. So I think if we finish on that as well, have a little peek into that as a section. Well, um, spoiler alert, Mm. um, it's not a hundred percent. So no matter what the genetics are, um, our personality is not predetermined 100% by those genetics. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, that that should put your mind at rest. 
Um, you know, I don't like predeterminism. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're not saying that, and the, all the evidence is very strong that it's not just down to our genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, our environment also might not be under our control as well. So there might be things about that. In fact, there will be lots of things about that that we don't have any control either. Um, but I think I think there is there is room. There definitely is room for agency. Um, I think I got a feeling actually this might be a two parter because uh, uh, there's another part of this conversation that is about how do you go about making change? How Maybe do we you do go that about- after then? Maybe yeah. we keep that for next time. We do the agency yeah. of personality or something next. We'll come up yeah. with a better title. <laughs> yeah, no, I think change is the is the yeah. uh, is the subject. It's how do you? Dad loves change. It's all about the change. That's his. That's his jam, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. Mm. Uh, right. Okay. So let's uh, let's get into how do we work out how much or what is down to nature. So I'm gonna. First of all, I'm talk, going to talk about what's known as the biological basis. So to try and understand how much of our personality, how much of us and what we do is down to biology, mm. um, what we tend to do is talk about a kind of simplified conceptual nervous system. So you might have noticed if you're reading books or looking at um, listening to presentations about psychology sometimes you will hear uh, sort of simplified conceptual models of the brain the reality is is the brain is incredibly complex and that's one of the challenges we've got when we're trying to work out how much is down to uh, our genetic structures if you like um, and also it does it is plastic so it the brain itself does change as a result of our experiences so it's, it's actually quite difficult to make inferences just on the the way that the brain is structured um but anyway that's that's part of the the biological picture now a big name in this area is is a guy called hans isink um isink is spelt e y s e n c k now hans isink is is quite important in this story um he's also quite controversial um for various reasons which we won't go into and i think what we can take from his research though is is a kind of interesting idea so um he came up with three factors so a bit like the ocean five factors he identified three but unlike the the five big five factors that i've already talked about he wanted to find out a biological basis of these differences. Whereas the big five are not interested in any biology. It's simply correlations, factors based on people's responses to questionnaires. Hans Eysenck was interested in how our biology might affect our behavior. So his three factors were were extroversion, introversion, which you should recognize, uh, again, neuroticism versus emotional stability. And those are the main two, actually. He did come up with a a third, which he doesn't seem to have done much with, really. But this was psychoticism versus superego strength, which I won't it go... It feels on. a lot, doesn't it? It does. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, um, extroversion versus introversion. I think we know what those terms mean. So extroversion is people who are more outgoing friendlier warmer um well and that sort of yeah i mean i i hear it described as this where it's like people that recharge by being with people is extroversion and people that recharge by being alone are more introverted in that both groups can enjoy both sets of things um but the way that you um yeah sort of take time to relax and your neutral state is is more um people based or solo based yeah and that would um that would chime with with the the theory so he he had his best bit of theory around that particular dimension the extroversion versus introversion dimension and he he said or he claimed that it was likely to be linked to cortical arousal 
controlled by the ascending reticulocortical activating system, or otherwise known as ARAS. Let's use English. (laughs) Yeah, so basically, um, this uh, reticulocortical activating system is essentially just a, a set of structures in the brain and pathways where the brain does certain things let's say and it's it's related to the amount of arousal that the person's going to experience and if you think about arousal that's probably the best way of thinking about it the amount of arousal that the brain is experiencing and the idea was that if you're an introvert then you in your brain this ARAS this um, activating system is always or often chronically over aroused so think about it as noise i suppose there's a heck of a lot of noise in there you're always over aroused therefore you will seek out interactions that don't arouse it further Mm. whereas if you are an extrovert it's understimulated so you're looking for input to increase levels of arousal so that kind of makes sense <laughs> is anyone okay you know well yeah i mean in. whenever we talk about personality traits we always talk about the extremes but mm. the reality is, is most people sit somewhere in between so right. i think about it as a line or a dimension on which you we love a are, good dimension yeah indeed you, you place yourself on this dimension if you're an extreme introvert then you'll be at one end if you're an extreme Mm-hmm. Uh, extra no, yeah, it makes more sense. Yeah. No, yeah, uh, so you're somewhere in between most people. Um, but yeah, to explain it is always helpful to to talk about the extremes. So that's that's actually quite a, an interesting way of thinking about it, and that relates to what you just said. You know, if you're if you're an extrovert, then how do you relax? You, well, you relax by going out for people. drinks with the pals, exactly. Going to a pub and, and dancing, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and what what seems to actually let you talk about pubs what seems to there is evidence for this unlike a lot of these um, models that the part of the evidence for this is that um, introverts who take alcohol or drugs that are depressants mm. tend to behave more like extroverts Mm. in other words if you're very shy if you're very introverted and you have a bit too much to drink you might start to become much more friendly and outgoing <laughs> and not worry so much um oh no my alter ego drunk celine <laughs> is being talked about and one was like we love drunk celine she's great and i'm like yeah she is and she's rare <laughs> keep her in a box yeah um and on the other hand, like if you're uh, an extrovert and you take things like uh, caffeine, if you drink a lot of coffee, mm. then that might have an effect on you to make you behave a bit more like an introvert. Mm. Yeah, With that. It is. Um, so there is some evidence for it, but I think, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of what Isenk says has been questioned. Some of his uh, methods seem to be a bit dodgy. Um, and. Yeah, some of his opinions are, uh, you know, not very, uh, well, let's say, enlightened. So, uh, we, mm. and I think by all accounts, he, was, he wasn't particularly well liked, even in the field at the time. But um, but I think there's, there's some, you know, there's some useful stuff there. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, the other one is neuroticism versus emotional stability. So he connected this to the limbic system which uh, organises emotional response. Uh, it's the more old system. Yeah, this is things like the... Um, responses so again, rather than thought, full processes or... Yeah, this is like, um, related to structures like the amygdala or amyg- amygdala, however you want to pronounce it, and um, hippocampus and the um, the way that... So the amygdala is tends to be around regulating emotions if it's stimulated um electronically then people become more aggressive or frightened um so there's definitely i think that's one of the bits of the brain that we we're pretty sure about how it affects personality or or behavior anyway Mm. um and the hippocampus is is all about the memory so but the, the connection of the two obviously is really important because memories tend to create is, emotion in us. this is interesting 
because I wonder how this works in relation to, I know it's a bit off topic, but how it works in relation to dementia. Because I was speaking to someone that did their, um, also did a master's in psychology hmm. and they went to a dementia treatment ward specifically. Yeah. Um, and they were saying it's all about doing stuff that makes them have a nice day. So like driving a fake car and, <laughs> you know, having stuff look like their old house. Because they were like, they don't remember what happened, but they remember that they had a nice day. Yeah. They remember the feelings. So they try and like make sure they have like a nice time every day because they won't remember why, but they remember the feeling. So that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's connected. at that unconscious level, isn't it? That, mm. um, you know, I think psychology is always uh, talked about or identified that there is this this part of us which is conscious, which is the the thing that we we kind of think is us. And then there's this other part of our brain that is definitely related to how we feel and yeah, what still we is. do. Yeah, we still just don't is. have control yeah. over it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, very, very interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah. So um, that's I think um, psychosism and super ego strength. I, I don't know much about what he means. Doesn't with that. sound right. No. I, I guess. Um, yeah. So psychoticism is essentially, you know, doing whatever you want without feeling any consequences and the super ego is a a freudian concept which is this kind of parental or authoritarian voice that stops us from doing things i suppose the conscience if you like Mm. um that tells us what's right and wrong and um yeah so i think but he didn't really seem to go much into that certainly not in the uh the books that i've read um but he definitely believed a lot was heritable um which is partly why he gets into trouble now because it he um asserts probably more as heritable than is either understood to be true and is also quite restricting um so yeah i think that's one of the reasons why he tends mm. to be somebody like you you know we don't want to uh and the evidence is that we also have more agency than that um there's other scientists like gray talks about reward seeking versus sensitivity to punishment so those two things play against each other you know you're either looking for reward um, or these things change with age though don't they yeah because mm. um up until 25 apparently you're um you're like fear of 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 punishment mm. and such like you're more willing to seek reward and yeah. not fear punishment as much. Yeah, you're mm. more risky. Because young people are like, why? Why do? I think it. Yeah, they they, they just don't realise that like young brains literally aren't as good at that yet, mm. <laughs> and, and yeah, that process not practiced. And and also up to the age of about thirty, the um, these uh, personality profiles that you get from the big five personality traits. So if you answer a questionnaire that's based around those five that we talked about, the ocean personality traits up to about 30 they tend to be a bit more pliable so mm-hmm. um, as you get to your late 20s and, and into your 30s then they become much more uh stabilized i suppose you could say so they tend to stay the same for the rest of your life until i suppose you know as you get older maybe there are changes then that might be due to the um the f- physiology of the brain mm-hmm. um but um but yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, the the final word I'll say on on that um, the the whole question of biological basis is the other element which I think we perhaps pay a lot more attention to now is the neurochemistry of the brain. So um, uh, people like Zuckerman and others have talked about the effect of serotonin, dopamine, uh, noradrenaline. Um, they have different names in different contexts, but basically it's the the chemical makeup, if you like, of the brain. But all of those things, whether you're thinking about the chemical makeup or the um, the structures of the brain or the, the way that the systems work, you're still talking about the biology. And all of those are determined, at least as a child, as a baby, by the uh, the genes. Uh, yeah, so all of all of the, those things are, are related to the genes. So we're still not kind of at the the root of the thing, if you like. What is actually going on 
with the genes. Um, and so that's part of the study um, is to understand how the distribution of those genes will affect people's personality. For instance, neuroticism is linked to levels of serotonin production. Mm. What determines how much serotonin is going to be produced? A particular gene, or at least that's the some tentative um, research that seems to suggest that the amount of serotonin production is based around a gene, and that can be isolated. So in the, I don't know whether you, you're probably too young to remember this, but during the 90s and noughties, like every every other news story was about, oh, I found a gene for this, or we found a gene for that, or mm. we're looking for the gene for this, or we're looking for the gene for that. That became a bit of a cliche, really. Um, I think what we, what we started to realize is that it's very rare that it will be a single gene. Um, so what we tend to see now, or what we tend to talk about is, a combination of genes uh, and it is so complex that the dream of being able to say you know what's the gene for criminality for instance just we're never going to do it because even just on a genetic basis it's so complicated mm. interactions between genes and yeah just there, there isn't a single gene even if it is genetic no, I remember that I was, I was watching a documentary once when this was all a big thing, and they're like the warrior gene. More people that are psycho um, that are psychos have the warrior yeah. gene, and that was a thing. yeah, yeah, um, that's a good example. Yeah, mm, no, mm. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's much um, evidence for for that. I mean, there might I say there might be some behaviours um, that are associated with certain genes, and so as I say, neuroticism seems to be linked to levels of serotonin mm-hmm. but of course serotonin production will also be down to other things because we respond to our environment and that's also down to um or that environment will then cause the production of certain chemicals therefore yeah it's not it's not as simple as that but yeah that that is one area um, another area that we've looked at is something called temperament there's some studies around this. Um, there's a couple of guys called Button Plomin. Plomin's quite a well-known um, uh, psychologist who's done a lot of work in this area. And he they studied three areas of behaviour, emotionality, activity, and distress, mm. um, as, as particular types of behaviour that, that should or could be regulated by genes or, or determined by genes, if you like. So the amount of fear, anger, and distress from the emotionality side of things that we tend to experience, our levels of activity, and um, um, and so on. So that that tends to um, be related to something to do with our genes. There's been stuff around um, cautiousness versus boldness. Again, there's been longitudinal studies. So the, the way of doing these studies is to is to actually um observe people's behavior over a long period of time mm. um and behavioral genetics does that in particular using i think we've mentioned this before things like twin studies you know as well though what mm. is interesting with that is that i think to to do observational you'd also have to ask questions as mm. well in the sense that i do stuff that goes against my like instinct or nature um all the time you know so like mm. i'm like um i don't know i'll think it's good for me to go do something so like um i don't know i'm nervous to go drive somewhere i've never driven before because i like i like familiarity and feeling safe and knowing what i'm doing but i was like but i can't just do that forever so i force myself to do it so behaviorally you might look at that and think oh she's someone that's willing to do new things mm. not not worried about it but i'm like I will, but I do have to like talk myself into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the um, that's one of the the difficulties with this sort of thing. In theory, that's where the environment is interfering with your genetics. But then the reason that you're making that decision 
could also be down to a genetic predisposition to you know make yourself do things exactly that you don't want to do. <laughs> exactly so it's so complicated mm. yeah i suppose the bottom line what what we're coming down to is through all this research all this study um a lot of these theories uh maybe disagree with each other uh, at odds with each other a little bit I think what, and it does illustrate the way that science works. You know, we talked about conspiracy theories and so on recently, and this is so different to the way that conspiracy theories work. This is, you know, a long, hard slog, and we're nowhere near there. You know, we don't understand all the mechanisms. But from all the research, we end up with pretty, all of the different approaches seem to be suggesting similar things. Mm -hmm. So there's a table that I'll read from it's from a study by lolin in 1992 and a quick cursory look at google suggests that whilst the you know there is a range of opinions on this it's not far off so um if we look at the big five the research seems to suggest with twins and with all the other things we've talked about is that extroversion is 0.36 in terms of its distribution. In other words, 36% of our amount of extroversion versus introversion is genetic. Um, About 0.28, again, 28% of agreeableness is down to our genes. Again, conscientiousness, 0.28, conscientiousness. Neuroticism, 0.31, 31% for neurotism openness now that's a a big one is 0.46 um so 46 percent now if you look at other studies they don't all have exactly the same figures but somewhere between 30 50 percent of these different personality traits seem to be genetic in in nature Hmm. um and i think that's you know that's that's quite interesting that suggests that there is a, a quite a big factor that is down to genetics um and so when you think about growing up in a cult that means that you are going to have some part of you that is predisposed to feeling certain ways to responding in certain ways whilst you're in that cult probably around about 30 to 40% of the way that you respond is going to be down to your predisposition, mm. which I think is really interesting. It is interesting. I I think back to my sort of question of earlier is, A, can cults be overwriting these personality tendencies? Um, and if so, kind of, yeah, what does that mean? What do you think about that? Yeah, so I mean, that that's probably a good opportunity to, to talk about the nurture bit, you know. So if we think that around 30% is is nature, then that means that anywhere between 50 and 70% is down to nurture. Um, and and that's, that's a big, big amount. So if you're, even if you, by your very nature, have a certain personality trait, it's still going to be affected by mm. your experience. But it's quite interesting. Um, we, we keep talking about this interview with Erica Bornman, who grew up in Quasi Zabantu, which is a, a kind of fundamentalist Christian um, group in South mm-hmm. Africa. Um, and she talks quite a lot in her book about her nature, which is very bubbly and outgoing. Um, and that is, obviously, that's a, a if she filled out a questionnaire, I'm sure that her levels of openness and extroversion would be quite high. Um, and she never lost that in terms of her of her real nature. But there were times when she, of course, because of her environment, behaved in a very different way. So I think it's it, it's a very interesting question. Can they can a cult destroy your your um, quite natural exactly personality um and probably destroys the wrong word but i think we are a combination of overwrite yeah it is going to be part of who we are and we'll behave in certain ways because 
of our upbringing and the way that we responded to that. You know, environments are really difficult um, because we've got the... So one of the things that, that we think about when we think about environment is like if you have a, a family, then you might be growing up in exactly the same family, but each child will respond differently to their environment. Mm. They also Children also modify their own environment. So they, you know, they'll do things to try and get different responses or different rewards or so they're not just passive um you know observers they are actual active participants in their own environment they're creating their environment as well as being in it when i was watching um cinema therapy the other day they were talking about how parenting like multiple children can be difficult because you might try and parent all of them the same to be quote-unquote fair but they're all individuals and all need different things from you that's right, and they will they will interact differently with you. So as a parent, you know you you will end up having to do things differently because of the interaction from from the child, and therefore parents will treat their children differently. That's that's the the absolute reality. There's a mm. there's a lovely little I mentioned this at the start of the podcast. There's a lovely little um, study, I suppose we call it, from a psychoanalytical perspective which as you know isn't my favorite but still it's a very interesting one because they observed a mother with her baby and they noticed that when the baby uh did things like you know got really excited you know how babies do sometimes they flap their arms Mm -hmm. you know they get really for some reason they get really excited they kick their legs and they flap their arms around and Mm -hmm. um some things amuse them or they're just you know just trying out the legs and arms i suppose um and the, the the mother responded to it, but she said, okay, honey. And she like, so there's this question of matching and undermatching or overmatching. So um, when we're talking to somebody, we, we may well uh, match their mood. So the mother, um, she's got a choice. Does she match the baby's mood, which might be, oh, hello, you know, what's up? You know, being all excited because the baby's excited. Um, or she might undermatch, and what she was doing was undermatching. Mm. So she was reducing her emotional response um, to the baby's response mm. or the baby's uh, behaviour, if you like. And so the interviewer asked her about this. Well, why did you do that? And and she started to talk about she didn't want her baby to be like her husband, who tended to be very introverted and quiet and she thought that if she over responded then the Mm. baby would go quiet and so she wanted to get the baby to you know carry on being excitable and so on so she was purposely reacting in a way that was you know she had in her mind how she wanted her baby to respond or behave Mm. ironically the result is going to be that she reduces the baby's excitability levels mm-hmm. so by undermatching she's actually doing the opposite to what she wanted yeah so i thought that didn't seem intuitive <laughs> yeah. but people come up with things on their own don't they exactly yeah but what it does demonstrate is that um even little things like that as a baby sets up certain responses and behaviors mm-hmm. that obviously affect us uh in the long well term. yeah i think we know that in the way that um Obviously, uh, attachment styles affect relationships. Yeah, exactly. Later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. things like that. So, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so there's there's a few sort of questions that that this uh, this brings up. You know, um, what is the difference between what what we really are and what we do? You know, is are what we do is what we do, um, who we are. That that relates to cults. You know, so I, I may have spent all my time trying to convince people to change their religion does that make me a personality that is always trying to or that is has a tendency to want to convince people of things you know change their minds or is that just how i was brought up and raised and therefore i didn't have any choice at the time as mm. soon as i stop that i no longer do that mm. um what we do for a long period of time tends to be linked to our identity you know so if we're a police officer for for many many years we tend to that we attach our identity to that Mm -hmm. um 
if we're a student, we tend to attach our identity to being a student. Um, so when we stop doing that, how does that affect our identity? You know, that, that's a really interesting area of discussion. When you stop being a Jehovah's Witness, how do you, know, you think about yourself? I read, I read a very interesting post from an influencer recently. Yeah about identity and how it's changed and let's let's see what you think about it um here they are okay uh my sense of personal identity how i define who i am and how i announce to others who i am has always been fluid but my attachment to different categories of self-definition changes as the years go by when I was, in quotes, the acne girl, I felt a sense of belonging to the makeup scene on YouTube, but skin clears, interests evolve, and when I was single, I suddenly became very important to me to connect with the LGBTQ community because I wanted to meet a life partner and was open to men and women. It felt weirdly important on prospective dates. Everyone else knew that too. Uh, then I settled down, and it's less vital that new people immediately know my orientation. Uh, now it's all much more private. Um, um, and now, um, when I had my son, mother became a core part of my identity. Um, and honestly, I think that's something that will stick. So I've just kind of quickly gone through that because obviously mm. it's quite a decently mm. long post. Um, but I think that's interesting there, kind of mm. just saying that how, yeah, identity is kind of fluid and the categories we use to do that is as well. It is interesting. And, and um, I mean, the words personality um, comes from the Latin word persona, which literally mm -hmm. means a mask. Mm -hmm. um, so in some respects, you can think about roles and uh, personality traits, you know, so. Yeah, so when you become a mother that I'm sure that really does affect how you behave and, and also how you see yourself. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, part of the discussion is is the situational nature of who you are. So, if yeah, you're being in a, single and yeah, being, and yeah. even like if you're at a wedding, for instance, you'll behave very differently to if you're at a funeral, you know, mm -hmm. and um, if you're at work, you behave very differently to when you're at home, and and so, um, you might is this about suppressing certain parts of your personality or is this just about the fact that actually what's more important than any predispositions is the environment in which you are and this is at the core of what zimbardo was was saying um so we keep talking about zimbardo we've not gone into his uh prison experiment in any great mm. detail but um one of the conclusions he comes to is that and I think he probably goes too far on this is my view, but this is, this is um, I think what his, his stance is, is that actually anybody, anyone can behave in atrocious ways. Um, and it's, it's because of the situation more than it is about the individual. Um, hence what people did in his prison experiment, behaving in awful ways to, uh, to each other um it has to be said though not all of the people in the experiment did mm -hmm. but um but certainly some about 30 percent, i think behaved in a in pretty atrocious ways yeah. um so the, the the situation is also part of the picture uh, when you then leave that situation then yeah then you have a different way of behaving um, it's it's always interesting, you know, and and it does become a lens through which everybody assesses everything. Um, so anything that's happening in the world, if you've been part of that sort of, um, if you've been a part of a high control group, then you may think about it through that lens. Um, so yeah, I think it always stays with you to some degree. Well, I think we've talked about a lot we've probably got a lot to talk about more but we have kept the lovely people for a whole hour yeah i mean how to how to kind of summarize all mm. that i think um for me the takeout bits are that we've got really good evidence to suggest that genes and heritability do play a big part in our personality 
We also know, though, that our environment also has a big part to play in how we behave and how we think mm-hmm. and who we are. I think growing up in a in any environment means that you are going to respond in a way that is congruent with your personality traits. So if you're if you're growing up in an environment that tells you you have to be responsible for everybody else and that you could be blood guilty if you don't preach and you happen to be high in conscientiousness and neuroticism, for instance, then you're going to be affected a lot by that. If you are somebody that, let's say, high levels of extroversion, openness, low levels of neuroticism, let's say, then actually you might really love going on the the ministry and knocking on doors and visiting people and and you actually don't feel any of that anguish that others do so i suppose that's the big thing that i would hope people take away from this is to appreciate that individual difference individual differences make a big difference that that doesn't mean to each other and have that conversation yeah also i think that doesn't mean that we let organizations that do bad things off the hook um because you know um the fact that some people manage to survive pretty unscathed doesn't mean that there's not a problem no exactly Mm -hmm. they have a surely every institution whatever it is has an obligation to each individual Mm -hmm. so indeed okay well I think I've got a lot of editing to do on that episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll do the one on change, though. We'll do that yeah. soon. Yeah, I think that'll be good. We, we need to follow that up with, with that. So I'd like to talk about humanism um, and humanistic psychology on that one because that's a really great model for change. Um, it's kind of been adopted and... Uh, what's the word? Co-opted? Co-opted, that's the word. It's kind of been co-opted by the self-help gurus of the world, but um, I think at the heart of humanistic psychology, there's some really, really positive um, and uplifting stuff. So let's have a look at humanistic psychology next time we talk about psychology. Um, some of our podcasts are, are deep, some are just quite surface. This is a this is a, a hard-going one. So I hope you yeah. stayed with us, listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, for making the effort i'll put some references in the notes if you want to know more by all means follow that up and if you've got any things you want to ask me or you know i don't pretend to get everything right so if you've got any challenges then please feel free to do that too thank you thanks very much bye bye what should i think about is an evil sheep production